0: All right, just a reminder that uh, Saturday morning for the men, we'll be having our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30. There will be our deacons meeting in preparation for the congregational meeting Sunday. Uh, The deacons meeting will be at um, 9 o'clock, and then following that at 10, there will be a um, prep school meeting for all those involved in prep school uh, we need to go through a number of changes that are going to take place. And then on Sunday, we have our annual congregational meeting that will immediately follow uh, the Sunday morning uh, worship service. So that's the main thing. And then, of course, we're gearing up for uh, for the Chafer Conference, which begins four weeks from Monday. So we need to get, get ready, start ba- getting ready to bake and plan. Before we get started, we need to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and that means that if necessary, we need to confess sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we just so very grateful because we have a family relationship with you you are our father you are our redeemer our creator and we have a special relationship with the lord jesus christ because we are in his body the church and he is the head and that the you and the son and the holy spirit all indwell us and this is such a unique privilege In all the history of mankind, what is being accomplished through the church, the body of Christ. And yet, Father, we know that there are so many in the world that have a vague, even if not even a vague understanding of what the church is all about. And, Father, we pray that we might continue to probe the scriptures to find out uh, who we are, to understand how we are to live and how we are to think and what we are to focus our lives upon. And we pray that we might be challenged with that tonight as we study your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. What we're looking at tonight is how to focus on Christ, that we are to focus our attention on him. He should be the focus of our lives. We all live in a world today where we are bombarded by having to make hundreds of decisions every single day. Now, some of them we're not too conscious of when we're making them, but we make more decisions in a day now than a Galilean fisherman would have made in a year, or maybe five years in the first century. Uh, Things have certainly changed a lot. Just think about the decisions you make at the beginning of the day. First of all, you have to decide whether or not you're going to hit the snooze button and how many times you're going to hit the snooze button. Then you have to decide what you're going to do when you get out of bed. Are you going to just go barefoot? Are you going to put some socks on? Are you going to put house shoes on? Um, and are you going to go in to start the coffee before you go to the bathroom or the other way around? I mean, we just have all these decisions to make. Are we going to take our vitamins now before we eat something, or are we going to uh, wait? Uh, what are we going to read in our Bible, are we going to go work out or not, am I going to just do cardio, am I going to do some kind of weights, or am I just going to go through the motions because I didn't sleep well last night, I mean, we just have all these different decisions to make, and not all of them are are of that much significance, but we have to make those those decisions. Some sources suggest that the average person makes around 35,000 decisions a day, and most of us are not that aware of them, and considering the fact that most people sleep around seven hours a night, uh, they're making about 2,000 decisions an hour. That's a lot of decisions. A number of years ago, I read a study that suggested that compared to a French peasant 500 years ago, we make maybe 10 or 15 times the number of decisions that they would make in a year. So it's, it's a big thing. But what's our criteria for making decisions? Now, granted, some decisions, we don't need much criteria. Am I going to put my left sock on first or my right sock on first? Uh, but other decisions, and, usually, and many of these are decisions we make before we're 25 or 30, are decisions that, that shape our lives. And we need to make decisions that are based on some sort of criteria. What is the ultimate goal of our life? What's the purpose of our life? And it, it's sad, but a lot of people, I would say the vast majority of people, overwhelming majority of people, never think about those things. What am I living for? What is the end game of my life? Uh, How am I going to structure my life so that when I get to the end of my life, I've accomplished that which I think is important? And what is it that I think is important? And we may have a lot of different values and ideas of what we want to accomplish in life, where we want to go, what kind of education we want to have, what kind of family we would like to have, the kind of home, a house, status symbols, all kinds of things like that. And what's the ultimate goal? The Apostle Paul certainly had his agenda, and he was Totally sold out to becoming the most erudite Pharisee and the holiest of all Pharisees on the planet. That's what he talks about when we get to the third chapter of Philippians, that he was a a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and that in terms of all points of the law, he had uh, fulfilled all of them, and he was obeying all of them. But we saw have seen in the life of Paul when he was on the road to Damascus to arrest and perhaps bring to execution a number of of Christians who had departed from the uh, pharisaical faith and they had become believers in Jesus of Nazareth as their Messiah that when Jesus appeared to him, he completely changed directions he recognized that. Jesus was who he claimed to be, that Jesus was the one that the Old Testament spoke of and that he fulfilled all those prophecies. And it took him two years that he spent in the Uh, Arabian Desert, which in that time, that's not down in Saudi Arabia, the whole area up to Syria was considered, you know, Jordan and Syria, that was all considered part of the Arabian Desert, basically went off by himself and rethought everything he had learned, everything he believed in light of one thing, and that was that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be and that Jesus Christ had died for his sins and was buried and was uh, uh, and arose from the dead uh 3 days later and Paul had to grow spiritually sometimes we think he's he he was you know after he came out of the Arabian desert he was there but no he was still growing and maturing through all of that a uh, time that he had from approximately um 38 or 39 AD until he died uh, which which would have come along some 25 years later, uh, approximately. And so when we look at him, what transformed him? What transformed him was the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he grew, he began to understand some basic things, that, that when we make decisions, when we order our lives, organize our time, uh, organize uh, the way in which we do things and our priorities in life, then we have to make these decisions in light of a significant end game. And we see this here in our passage that Paul is making decisions in light of that in game. He came to the point where he realized that he needed to live his life today in light of eternity. And, and that is brought up uh, in this particular passage. He, as he grew spiritually, his values, his goals, his life objectives all changed. What he had hoped for, what he had planned for, whatever his hopes and dreams had been before uh, were radically transformed by the Word of God. And so he is focusing on that future end game. In Philippians one nineteen and 20, he says, For I know that this, and that this here is the preaching of uh, the, the gospel one way or the other, and his, and his incarceration, he said, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to... Now, watch these two words. I talked about them last time. My earnest expectation... And hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed he's focusing on the future, both those terms earnest expectation, and the word for hope has that idea of a confident expectation your your confidence in what is going to happen in the future and so he understands uh, what we've talked what we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks on Sunday morning that sixth Uh, spiritual skill, that sixth problem-solving device that we have to live in light of our uh, uh, personal sense of our eternal destiny. And he is certain of this. He says, for I know this. He's confident. It's a confident knowledge. He has an earnest expectation, which is a term for confidence, and hope is a term for confidence, and that this is going to turn out for that, uh, for his deliverance. Now, when we look at how Paul's life was transformed, what he does is he he is utilizing what we have talked about in terms of these ten spiritual skills. Now, I'm not going to go through all of them, but just a reminder... That whenever we're out of fellowship, for it to count for eternity, we have to confess sin and get back in fellowship. And instantly we're walking by the Spirit again, for however long or short that time period may be. And then we maintain that position of walking by the Spirit by claiming promises, by trusting the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. And then we have to orient our lives to the teaching of Scripture, doctrinal orientation. We are aligning our lives with the reality that God has revealed to us in Scripture. And we operate on grace, kindness to others, their their undeserved kindness. They don't. Uh, maybe they do a lot of things that don't, we don't think they really deserve any kindness, but as we mature, we recognize we don't either, and so we're uh, kind and generous and, uh, benevolent to others. And then we have, as we grow, we reach that period in terms of adolescence, just like when you were growing up, uh, there, you reached a point where you began to think in terms of, where you were going down the road, long-term. You weren't just thinking in terms of what am I going to do today or what am I going to do tomorrow, but how is this going to impact future decisions and what I want my life to count for? So we call that the personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're going to be showing up at the judgment seat of Christ. And so we make decisions today in light of that. Then there's personal love for God, which plays into what we're looking at, because that is very closely related to occupation with Christ. In fact, these three things, personal love for God the Father, impersonal or unconditional love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ sort of go together and and feed off of each other as we grow and ultimately then we reach the point where we are uh, fully experiencing that joy of Christ that he shared with us so we're just focusing on these these two that I've highlighted because the focus here uh, that we see exhibited in Philippians uh, chapter 1 uh, verses 19 down to 24 It's all about Paul's occupation with Christ. His focus on the Lord has so transformed him. We see that he has a personal sense of his eternal destiny. Going back to verse 10 in this first chapter, he's talking to the Philippians, and he says, um, that you may approve the things that are excellent as opposed to the things that are just okay or the things that are good, the things that that uh, that there 's nothing wrong with them, but god doesn 't want us to be mediocre uh, Christians; he wants us to pursue excellence, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, the day of Christ is when we are face-to-face with the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema seat. So all through Philippians, he makes these allusions to that ultimate reality that we're going to be standing before the Lord Jesus Christ uh, for evaluation of our spiritual life in in this church age. And that's what he's talking about in verse 20 when he talks about according to my earnest expectation and hope that is related to his understanding of, of what's coming in terms, of the, uh, in terms of, of the judgment seat of Christ. And notice what his mindset is, because occupation with Christ or focus on Christ is all about a mindset. It, it's about a mental attitude. It's not about emotion. You know, we've all are aware of Christians that are just just sentimental about Jesus, and they talk about loving Jesus. And there's and it's interesting that I've noticed that uh, when you are around a lot of fairly young believers, they'll talk a lot about. You know, they they talk about the Lord a lot, and there's certain phrases and certain um, cliches that they use a lot. Uh, they're just babies they're learning how to talk and what to talk about but they're, they 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 want to talk about the lord and that's great but they don't realize they're just not not very deep but they'll talk about loving the lord but their love for the lord is like the love of a 6 month old baby to for his parents that love is related to the fact that They get fed, and they get bathed, and they get cleaned, and and that big person does whatever I want to whenever I scream or cry or act unhappy. And that's pretty much how a lot of young believers are, and they never really quite get out of that stage. But we're talking about something that comes with maturity, and it doesn't just wait till you get there. Before it happens, remember when i 'm talking about those problem solving devices, the spiritual skills that it 's a dynamic growth we you know I may be talking about one thing for several months, and that may be talking about love, which i 've done recently, gone through the what the Bible teaches about love and you 're a baby believer, but you 're learning about personal love for God and you're learning about um, impersonal love for other believers you're loving one another as Christ loved the church but you're just barely getting a grasp on what the faith rest drill is but you're growing more because that's where, where you're being taught and where God may be testing you so we grow in a dynamic way. It's, it's sort of like you watch a house being built. Well, the plumber should have gotten here this week, but he can't get here for another month, so let's put the electrician in here now. It would be better if he came after the plumber, but you know we're going to put the electrician get all the electrical uh, wiring in there before we get the plumbing in because that's just how it is. Life is messy. And a lot of people would get the idea that, okay, I have to master this step before I can master the next step. It's a blueprint. It's not a order of development. Uh, so uh, we have this uh, expectation, this hope, this personal sense of our eternal destiny, and the more we get focused on that, the more it begins to impact the decisions that we're making uh, right now. And this is the same kind of thing that happens as we get more and more focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are living uh, for him. He's the head of uh, of the church. He's the head of the body. Uh, it's not, this church is not Robbie Dean's church. This isn't anybody else's church. This is the Lord Jesus Christ's church. We're all a part of different congregations that all fit together within this organism called the body of Christ. So, what Paul is saying here is he's got this confident expectation, and and then he says that in nothing I shall be ashamed. So, the first thing we see in relation to this this um, confident expectation is a phrase that brings us also right to the judgment seat of Christ. He says, he expresses that he's determined that he's not going to be ashamed. And in 1 John 2.28, John says basically the same thing, and he's addressing little children, young believers. He says, and now little children abide in him, that when he appears... That's at the that's at the rapture, and immediately after the rapture, we have the judgment seat of Christ, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. There are going to be a lot of believers who just aren't prepared for the judgment seat of Christ or anything because they were never taught anything, and they just continue to think and talk and communicate and act like unbelievers. And they're going to show up, and they're going to be part of that group at the judgment seat of Christ, that all of their works just burn up, but they're saved, yet it's through fire. Uh, There's two kinds of believers, those who get rewards and those who don't, but everybody gets eternal life and goes to heaven. So that's what Paul is showing us here, that he's not going to be ashamed but with all boldness, as always, he says. So now also Christ will be magnified. That's occupation with Christ. That Christ is going to be glorified, and this is so important because what we live in a culture today, and frankly, the sin nature is always about self glorification. But we need to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've studied this before, the word for glory. When you go back into the Hebrew word uh, for, go- glory, uh, for glory, it's uh, chavad, which has the idea of something that is heavy. Uh, and, it, and because it's heavy, it's significant, it's important. So that's the figurative meaning of the word. And so we glorify God by showing that God is important to us. God is significant. He is so significant that my life would be radically different if it weren't for God. And I live in a way that, that visibly demonstrates that. And this is evidence in the angelic uh, angelic revolt. And so we magnify Christ. We magnify God Psalm thirty four three calls us to magnify the Lord. Uh, the psalmist says, "With me and let us exalt His name together." So we're, we're making our lives about Jesus Christ. There, it's not about me and all the things I may have thought I wanted when I was younger, all the all the goals and things that I had thought about doing or accomplishing. But it's ultimately about the Lord Jesus Christ and it's about his plan for my life. Psalm 69:30 I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. So the idea there is that the worshiper would go to the uh, temple and bring a thanksgiving offering and then talk about what God had done in his life and how grateful he is. To what God has done, and see that magnifies the Lord. It, it uh, as it were, we're taking out a um, a magnifying glass, and when you look at something through a magnifying glass, what it looks smaller? No, it looks larger. It looks bigger. So we're in, in enlarging God, as it were, highlighting his his significance, and so. As we look at this, his mindset is first of all that he's determined not to be ashamed. And addition to that, he comes. He says, uh, "So now also, in addition to not being ashamed, Christ will be magnified." It, it's not. I'm hoping he will be. Maybe he will be. I'd like it to happen that he would. He is stating dogmatically that Christ. Uh, will be magnified in his body and then he says whether by life or death because he's he's a prisoner he's in a pretty cushy job he, uh, he's in a pretty cushy deal because he is he's rented a house he's under house arrest he has a small degree of freedom but he has the freedom to have many visitors And he's there, and he uses the opportunity to have conversations with the praetorian guards that are assigned to him, and he's leading them to the Lord, and then they're going home and uh, witnessing to their families and witnessing and talking about what Paul is saying to others in the praetorian guard, and the gospel is even penetrating into the household of Caesar. So he's having a great impact, and he doesn't have to walk miles and miles and miles along the Ignatian Way or the Appian Way. He doesn't have to be worry about being run out of town as he had been uh, in various places before. He doesn't have to worry about being a shipwreck. And so he's got it fairly easy right now, and God is using that to expand the gospel. But there's a reality that when he finally is heard by Caesar, and this is Nero at this time, that he could could be executed. But he develops a confidence as he thinks through this that, no, God still has things for him to do, so that probably won't be it. But as he's thinking this through, he says, so Christ will be magnified in my body whether I live or die. God is going to be glorified. And that's something that we should think about that God is going to be glorified in our death. One of the ways that God is glorified in your death is by your memorial service or funeral. I've had a few people say, well, you know, I'm older, most of my friends are gone, not too many people will show up. But what happens in a lot of cases is that if you have been uh, able to communicate with your health care workers in the hospital and talk to them, uh, you've witnessed to them. And I tell you, I've done a lot of funerals where the peop- some of the people that show up at the funeral, not only the family, but you have these health care workers and others that show up, and people you don't, you don't know who's going to show up. And the purpose of any funeral has doesn't have anything to do with remembering the person who has died. It really doesn't. It has to do with their final witness and testimony to everybody about the gospel. And that's what your funeral is all about because you have no idea who's going to show up And who's going to be there who needs to hear the gospel? And that's basically your last witnessing opportunity. And you're not going to have anything to say about it. (laughs) And you don't have to worry about anybody rejecting you because, oh, you're one of those silly Christians. So it's a great opportunity to present the gospel. And so... This is what Paul's focusing on. Christ will be magnified, whether by life, and I can continue. This is what he'll he'll talk about. I could continue to travel. I can continue to teach the Word, and I can continue to evangelize, and people will be saved, and there'll be even more fruit. Or if I die, Christ is glorified, and I will be face-to-face uh, with the Lord. And then we come to verse verse 21, and he says, For to me... To live is Christ. Now, see, that, that tells you right there, he is truly focused on Christ. His life is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about the mission that the Lord Jesus Christ had given him. He was an apostle. Now, none of us are apostles. But he has that commission. But we have a commission as well. This is in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen and 20. This is called the Great Commission. And even though Jesus is speaking to his uh, disciples and directing them, this mission is passed on through them to each and every generation of believers. And he prefaced this remark by ta- saying to them, All authority has been given to me, in heaven and earth. After his resurrection, then he is given that position, and he is going to be given, or God the Father will delegate to him uh, the responsibility to be the judge at the judgment seat of Christ and then at the great white throne judgment. All judgment is given to him. And so all authority has been given to him, and because he's the one who's been given this authority, he then directs them. As to what their priorities are to be, and he starts off, and there's a lot of debate about the first word. It, in it, it's, a go, which in English looks like a, it would be a present active infinitive um, imperative, but it's not. It's a participle, and so you'll find people who in first year Greek. Maybe second year Greek, they say, oh, that needs to be translated like it's a temporal participle while you are going or as you are going. And that's possible that Jesus is saying, as you go through your life, for the rest of your life, you're to be accomplishing these two things. But he says, make disciples, and that's a present imperative. And he says, uh, you make disciples, and the, there are two ways you make disciples. One is by baptizing and then by teaching. So the command is to make disciples. But there's a funny little th- rule in Greek that if you have a participle that's followed by an imperative, that that makes that, that imperative, imperative sense of that command bleeds over to the participle. And the, so those are called What? imperative participles and so it, it it should be translated and usually is as a command because it picks up that that imperative from the command to make disciples so it it, and it still has the idea of as you're going while you go through life wherever you go wherever you find yourself if you find yourself in prison Or if you find yourself in a boardroom as an executive in a, in a Fortune 500 company, or you find yourself in the military, you find yourself at school, you find yourself as a, as a, someone learning how to be a carpenter, working on building houses, and you're talking with the other guys. Wherever you go, you're to be focused on the mission is to make disciples. A disciple is somebody who is a student, a learner. Now, a disciple isn't a believer per se. A lot of people get confused on that. I remember before I went to seminary, I read a book on uh, discipleship that was written by Dwight Pentecost that was quite good, but when I... and then I would hear other people talk, and I would say, well, does, is a disciple the same as a believer, or is it different? Now, if you get involved with somebody's teaching from a lordship salvation perspective, then they're going to say a disciple is a believer and a believer is a disciple. There's no believers that aren't disciples. But the reality is there are a lot of believers that aren't disciples, because discipleship has to do with your learning and growing and maturing after you're saved. And that's distinct from what happens at salvation. At salvation, you trust in Christ, and you're immediately born again. You are declared just before God, but you're you're just a baby. You're just barely born spiritually. And then you have to decide, well, now that I've become a believer, now that I have been Born again. What am I going to do with this spiritual life? Am I just going to let it sort of wither here and uh, die of starvation? Doesn't really die, but that's just a figure of speech. Or am I going to feed it? And then, how much am I going? Do I just want to grow to be where I can, you know, get out of diapers, or do I want to grow to be an adolescent, or do I want to grow to be a spiritually mature believer? And the reality is, if you think about your life. When you were approaching adolescence, and you were maybe 11 or 12, and you were just on the cusp of of adolescence and being a teenager, you would make comments to your mother, well, quit treating me like a child. You wanted to be treated like an adult. There's not one person here that when they were at that age, they didn't want their parents to be treated like adults so they could have additional uh, things to do. But guess what? What you realize was that real life was in adulthood. It wasn't in childhood. You're not Peter Pan. You've got to grow up. You've got to mature. And that's where real life is, is in adulthood. But so many people just want to stay in their spiritual diapers. They don't want to grow up spiritually. They think think the end game is getting born again. The end game is going to spiritual maturity. And and being able to accomplish the things spiritually that the scriptures talk about, so we're to make disciples. We're to encourage people to focus on going to a church where they're taught the word, so that they can become a learner, a student of the scriptures, and be taught that way. And and what's involved in that? I think the next two participles are both part are, are both participles of means. They're describing how you make disciples. The first one is baptizing. Now, a lot of people are caught up on this, and they think that this is uh, just all about water baptism. But the Scriptures doesn't really envision people who trust in Christ who don't get baptized uh, by water and believers' baptism. And the reason is is because, first of all, if they were Jewish, that really marked the break with Judaism. And, and a lot of Jews wouldn't, wouldn't even worry about you if you said you were a Christian until you were baptized. And once you're baptized, then, then the family would just declare you dead, and they wouldn't have anything more to do with you. So baptism was a picture of the spiritual baptism of the, by, by the Holy Spirit that we are buried with Christ and then risen to new life. And so baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's important because in a Jewish background, remember, Matthew's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. uh, They held to a strict Unitarianism. And here he's talking about you're not just baptized in the name of the Father, but the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's Trinitarian. And that all of this relates to their salvation. So the first thing is you're getting people saved and they have to understand what has happened and their new life in Christ. And then second, by teaching them, not by preaching, not by uh, having all of these nice exhortational messages that is common today. It's by teaching them Jesus said to observe some of the things that I have commanded you. That's not what it says. Teaching them everything, the whole counsel of Scripture. Teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And then he says, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he is with us spiritually. He indwells every believer. So this is our mission. It was Paul's mission, but he had a different role in that he was an apostle. And we have a different role. We're a member of the body of Christ, but every believer is to be an ambassador for Christ, and we are to be involved in carrying out this great commission. You can be involved a lot of different ways. It doesn't always mean you're on the front lines. Some people are involved in this because um, I think some people have the gift of giving, and with the gift of giving, they have the gift of making money. And I've known a number of people like this, and they just make money and they just use it to support pastors and missionaries, and that's what they 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 are focused on the mission God gave them, and their role is to financially support these these missions and missionaries and and pastors. So there's a lot of different ways in which we can all be involved in this, Uh, teaching kids in prep school, teaching kids, no matter how old they are, even babies, just reading the Bible to them for a familiarization tour. All of that is important. And so Paul understood that, that mission. And then he says, but if I live on in the flesh... He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So the last thing he talked about in the previous verse is death. And then he has a contrast. But if I live on in the flesh, what he means by that, if I live on in my physical body, this will mean fruit from my labor. So this is one of those places where fruit has the idea of converts, people coming to Christ to be for salvation. And on the other hand... Uh, It applies to those who are growing and maturing. Because Jesus said, if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. They'll bear fruit, much fruit, much more fruit. In John chapter 15. So there's fruit from his labor. Yet, he says, I don't know how to make this choice. Point is, it's not his choice to make. It's the Lord Jesus Christ's choice. But he recognizes that either way is great. Because if he stays alive, he's going to bear more fruit. And if he, is, if he dies, then he's going to be face to face with the Lord. And being face to face with the Lord, we're told in uh, Revelation 21.4, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. Uh, there will be no more pain. But the former things have uh, completely passed away. So to die, it's gain. You're going to be face to face with the Lord. You're going to be in a resurrection body. You're no longer going to be struggling with sin or temptation. And you're going to be at a place of rest, really, because that's the analogy that the writer of Hebrews uh, will use. But he doesn't know how to make up that decision. So in verse 23, he then says, "...for I am hard-pressed between the two." I have, on the one hand, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. And I can't tell you, I talk to so many people who get, as we get older, I think we start thinking more and more, and especially we watch the collapse of our culture. Uh, we, we think, I'm ready, Lord. Just, just take me out of here. I'm tired of being here and I'm ready to be face to face with you. But we have a mission to accomplish. So Paul says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. See, he's not to think just about himself. He's thinking about the mission and what he can accomplish. So this is a wonderful chapter or a wonderful section because what these verses do is they exemplify in Paul what it means to be occupied with Christ. And so we need to understand what the Bible says about this. What does it mean? How do we use in this term to be occupied with Christ? Some of you are old enough to remember when we had the uh, occupation of Europe after World War II. That's not quite what this is talking about. There's a lot of different nuances to the word occupy, and so we need to address that initially. What does it mean when we're talking about occupation with Christ? And when we go to the dictionary, then one of the meanings of to be occupied with something is to be totally focused and engrossed in a task or with a person. You're just completely absorbed with that person. And you can relate to this maybe. First time you thought you were in love with somebody or somebody thought they were in love with you and they just it was just um, totally engrossed in that other person, always thinking about them, always focused upon them, thinking about things you could do for them. And that's what it means to be occupied with Christ, that he dominates our thinking. So that we're making those you know, 35,000 decisions in a day, then he's governing those decisions. We're making those decisions in light of Christ. How does this glorify Christ? How does this magnify Christ? How would Jesus talk about this? How would Jesus think about this? And the silly thing that happens in so many churches is, and I al- almost hate using some of this, some of these questions because we, we get this little Jesus-aware stuff that says, what would Jesus do? But that's a great way to put it. I used to say it something like that before. We, we need to think, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus handle this situation? What would Jesus say in this situation? And, you know, as I grew older, I realized Jesus wouldn't say what you would say. Jesus would just ask a question. It's amazing how many times things came up and he just asked questions to get people to think about about what was going on. But this is what it means to be occupied with Jesus, to be engrossed in him, to be focused on him. And in order to do that, what do you need? Well, Peter says it in 2 Peter 3.18, we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have to know him. And you can't truly love somebody if you don't know them. And you have a lot of Christians who sing these little choruses about loving Jesus, but they don't know what that means because they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't understand his character. They don't understand his mission. They don't understand why he did the things that he did in in the Gospels. So we need to understand that. And and to to be able to be focused on Christ, occupied with Christ, we have to know the mind of Christ. And this is what Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 2.16. He says, but we have the mind of Christ. It's the Word of God. There's a reason Jesus is called the Logos, the Word. He's the, He's the visible, living Word. And we have the written Word, which is the revelation of the thinking of the, the mind of Christ. So, occupied with Christ, in terms of a definition, means to focus our attention upon Him, to think in terms of, how would He handle this situation? What should I say? How should I think about this? What is the divine viewpoint perspective on this? And this takes time. It goes completely contrary to our self-absorbed sin nature. This is a mature function. Now you start to think these things when you're a, a, a less mature believer, but it takes time to grow in the knowledge of of our Lord Jesus Christ. It takes time to understand a lot of these things, and so we have to we have to go through that. And we have to understand what the mission is for each and every one of us. The mission is to grow to spiritual maturity so that we can be usable for the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't use you if you're a baby believer. He certainly does. But you're not as usable as a mature believer. I mean, an apprentice carpenter is usable, but not like a master carpenter. So you have to go through those stages of, of spiritual growth. And we've seen Matthew 28, 19, and 20, but ultimately we ask the question, well, what's Christ's mission? What's the ultimate goal? And the ultimate goal is that we are to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says that we were bought at a price. That's redemption. Christ died for us. He paid the price so that we, we don't become free when we're saved. In one sense, we do. We're set free from the dominion of the sin nature. But we we shift from being a slave to the sin nature to being a slave to Christ. We don't get in a position of neutrality where I can, oh, I'm just kind of free. I don't have to obey my sin nature or Christ. No, there's only two options. You're walking by the Spirit or you're walking according to the flesh. So the goal is to glorify the Lord. Now, this is important for each one of us as individuals. That's our mission. But you think about what you wanted to do with your life before you were saved and you think about uh, lots of different things maybe you wanted to get a certain kind of education maybe you wanted to get married and have a large family maybe you wanted to uh, travel maybe you wanted to uh, get away from everything that you, you knew and you grew up with and go someplace else, see the world but what does God want you to do? That is what is to factor in. We are to glorify God. We're here to serve the Lord and not to serve our own desires and our own uh, pleasures. We are to glorify God. That means to show that he is the most important thing that any of us can have in in, in our life. And then when you go from being single to being married, that's the goal of a marriage. The goal of a marriage is not to be happy. The goal of a marriage is not to have a life partner that you're just having a lot of good times with. The goal of a marriage is to glorify God, ultimately. And that means that gives both the husband and wife something that they're going to both drive toward, and that's when you have, see, a mature Christian marriage, is that they're both focused on... We're serving the Lord, and that for that reason, you know, some of the things we may have thought we wanted when we were younger, well, they're just not as important as fulfilling the mission that God gave us because that's why we're here. So our mission is to, is, in terms of the Great Commission, is to make disciples, and in terms of the ultimate goal, it is to glorify God in our body and in our spirit because they belong to God. Now in verse 12, Paul comes along and he says, not that I have already attained, this is in Philippians 3.12 rather, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. He he says, I'm not at that final stage of maturity yet, but I press on that I may lay hold of that. Okay, he's pressing on, that's the goal, and he's going to lay hold of something. Why? Because that's why Christ laid hold of us. When you were saved, Christ laid hold of you. And he has a mission for you. And he called you for a purpose in terms of that, that, that mission, not just to be saved, not just so he could enjoy your wonderful personality and all your brilliant thoughts. He called you for a Mission, a task, we were laid hold of by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what He promised us is that we would have an abundant life. But the abundant life is a life that is rich and fulfilled, and it may be involved in suffering. Look at go to First Corinthians or Second Corinthians five and look at all the things that Paul went through he had a rich full abundant life he's shipwrecked he's flogged he's uh, thrown to the uh, he's thrown in prison all kinds of things he's stoned left for dead it's a rich abundant life we don't define it the way the unbelieving world defines it in terms of accomplishments, in terms of uh, wealth, in terms of status symbols. We define it in terms of the mission objective because when we're pursuing God's mission objective, the result of that is we're going to have fulfillment. We're going to have the abundant life. We're going to have inner joy because it's not based on any external circumstances. So Jesus promised us in John ten ten. He said, "The thief does not come except to steal." See, a lot of people think, "Well, you know, if I'm going to be a Christian, I, it just I just can't have joy. I can't do what I want to do. I'm not going to be able to to have all these kind of fun doing these other things that I'd like to do, and it's going to be pretty boring." Uh, but Jesus says, "I didn't come like a thief to steal your happiness or your joy or to kill." I have come, number one, that you can have life. That is, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. You are regenerate at that point. This is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. When we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ we have this destiny of royalty, and we're already there positionally. So number one, that we can have life, and number two, that we may have it more abundantly. That's in terms of spiritual growth and, and spiritual life. 1 John 2.4 says, He who says, I know him... And does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. See a lot of people think, "Oh, I know Jesus, but they, they they really don't and the our life is the metric. How well do you obey Jesus? How well do you understand the all the different mandates of the spiritual life? Now that's not legalism. That is that you're members of the royal family of God and their standards. And this is how we are supposed to live. And if you live that way, walking by the Spirit, then God's going to use you in wonderful ways, and you're going to have uh, spiritual maturity and abundant life. It goes on in 1 John 2, 5, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love for God is matured. So to develop the love for God... Uh, personal love for God and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you have to do? You have to grow. You have to know what the commandments are. How do you know what the commandments are? You have to read your Bible. You have to somebody teach you what they mean. You have to be in Bible class. You have to study the Word. You have to organize your life, rearrange your priorities, restructure what you do, So that you have time for the priority, which is, I need to get to where I can focus on Christ. To do that, I need to know who He is. To do that, I need to know the commandments and to love the Lord. And to do all of that, i got to be in Bible class. i got to be listening to the Word day in and day out. And if I'm not, I'm just still going to be acting, thinking, and talking like unbelievers around me. So it's a challenge. We have to learn to walk in fellowship with the Lord. So how do we get there? Well, number one, you have to realize and accept that this is to be your objective also. This isn't, this isn't optional. God is saying, we're living in an angelic revolt. The world is the devil's playground. And I have called you out of the world for a purpose. And you have to make this your objective to glorify Christ. Some pe- that's, that's almost first base, and a lot of people just don't get there. And second, to do that, we must come to know him, and there's only one way to do that, and that's when we study the word. 1 John 2:4. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word truly the love for God is in him. That's what we have to do. Now, the fifth point is we have to adjust our mental attitude focus. Matthew six thirty one to 33. Now, just listen to this. This is so important. Usually people just quote six thirty three. He starts off, he says, don't worry. That's not an option. It's a command. Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Don't worry about it. God is, is saying, I'm going to take care of you. For after all these things the Gentiles seek. That's their goal and objective. They want wealth, they want money, they want houses, they want cars. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those, but that's not what we're focused on. We're to be focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. So after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, the world says, I have to seek those things in order to get them. And the Bible says, you focus your life on God's plan and God's mission, and God will take care of you getting these things. That's his responsibility. Our responsibility is to do what he says. So this is occupation with Christ. Occupation with Christ is developed along with our personal love for God the Father and the Son. And as we do this, we make that relationship the number one priority in our life. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the angels... Cloud is usually associated with the angels. These aren't believers who have died and gone to heaven, okay? These are the angels who are watching us. We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight, that is, anything that is distracting in our lives from the objective, and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? You have two, you have a participle at the beginning of verse two, and it's usually just translated looking, but it it should be translated as a participle of means by looking. How do you do it? By looking at Jesus, by concentrating on Jesus, by focusing on Jesus. He's the author of And that word means, refers to someone who's a leader or the originator of something. He originated our salvation at the cross. And he is the one who is, and it's usually translated, the perfecter of our faith. He doesn't perfect it in terms of making it not flawless. He is the completer. He brought it to completion at the cross. That's why when he finished at the cross, he said, It is finished. Perfect tense. It is over and done with. He completed the plan of salvation, who for the joy that was set before him, it wasn't pleasant. I can't imagine what it was like as the perfect spotless Lamb of God without sin to come and put on a mortal flesh and live in the midst of sinners and uncleanness and every kind of thing that you can imagine that offended his righteousness but for the joy set before him he had these his eyes on the end game the joy that was set before him was the cross and he endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God looking unto Jesus that's occupation with Christ focusing on him What we find in a number of passages is that we are to imitate Christ. Paul says, imitate me a couple of times, but he clarifies it in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. He's saying, if you want to have a representation of what it is that Jesus would do, you look at me because I'm imitating Christ. In Hebrews 6.12, he says, he war- uh, the writer of Hebrews warns that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Imitate mature believers who are focused on their personal sense of their eternal destiny to inherit at the judgment seat of Christ. Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. The context is forgiving graciously forgiving others, do as God did, as He uh, forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. That's what it's all about. So what's necessary? What is necessary to develop our love for God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Mark twelve thirty three quotes from the Old Testament and says, "'To love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your understanding,' and with all your strength with every ounce of your being love your and then to love your neighbor as yourself so he's quoting that from the old testament we're to love the lord with everything that we have john 14:15 and 24 says he who if you love me keep my commandments that's the metric for your personal love for god the father john 14:24 he who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. Then we look at first John four twenty. If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? This is talking about the you're out of fellowship. You're, you're lying because you're not walking with the Lord, walking by the Holy Spirit who produces love, joy the fruit of the Spirit. We come to 1 John 5, 2. By this we know. So he's going to say this. By this, what I'm about to say. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. We've got to know His commandments before you can keep them. And you have to keep them before you are going to grow in your capacity of love for the Father and for the Son. In John 15.10, If you keep my commandments, Jesus said, you will abide in my love. That's talking about fellowship. Abiding is always a fellowship term. If you don't keep his commandments, then you're out of fellowship. If you'll keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then First John two three and 4. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments, is a liar. See, you have to grow and mature to know Jesus. Philip was one of his disciples. And just before, uh, just after the uh, Last Supper, just after they have eaten and the Lord Jesus Christ instituted uh, the communion from that Passover meal, as they're leaving, uh, the Lord is teaching them and that he's going to leave. And Peter says, "Well, Lord, where are you going, and how do we don't know where you're going, and how are we going to get there?" And and uh, Jesus says, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me." And so then Philip says, "Well, show us the Father." And Jesus turns to Philip, who's saved, and he says, "How long have you been with me, Philip? And you don't know me." See, we have this confusion. We say you need to know Jesus. Judas knew Jesus. They didn't get him anywhere. You're not saved by association with Jesus. You're saved by believing in Jesus. And so so Jesus tells Philip, well, you've been with me. You're a believer. He's already said all of them were clean except for Judas, but you don't know me yet because knowledge of Christ comes only through time and studying the Word. So he who says, I know him... Well, if you're not, you're just a baby believer disobedience if if you can't obey his commandments. So what have we learned? Three things. First of all, we are to renew and replace our agenda from perhaps the things we hope to do in this life to orient to a goal of glorifying God and magnifying Christ and replacing our desires with his desires. Second, to do this, we need to adjust our focus to Christ and his mission for us. And third, we must learn how to think about Christ. We have to stop and reflect. As much as I have to hate to say this because it's a slogan on Jesus where we have to ask the question, what would Jesus think about this? But see, in order to answer that question, you can't generate some image of Jesus and then worship it. You have to know the Gospels. You have to know the Scriptures. That's the only way you're able to answer that question objectively and not just make up something because that's what you want to do. We have to say, what would Jesus think about this? How would Jesus respond? Usually with the question. Now, I want to close with this. In 1918, a 55-year-old blind singer was read a tract by a missionary. Now, this blind woman had not always been blind. She was born into a manse. That's the Methodist term for a parsonage. Her father was a Methodist pastor, and this young girl had a remarkable gift of music. She had an incredible voice, and they were her parents were in a position to hire some of the best voice teachers in England, and then when she was older, they were able to send her to Europe uh, to be trained with some of the uh, best vocalists in Europe. Eventually she married. But then something occurred and she became blind. Her husband left her. The years that followed were tough years. They were hard years. She had a, Her life was filled with disappointments and heartache. But she never lost her faith in the Lord. When she was 55... This missionary friend read this tract to her, and there was a line or two in that tract that grabbed her attention. reads like this, So then, turn your eyes upon him, look full into his face, and you will find that the things of earth will acquire a strange new dimness. She later told the story that in the moment that she heard that, just like a flash in her consciousness, the words were put together and along with the melody. And she, within seconds, had the chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful faith. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's the chorus. She lived to be 98 years old. Her final years were in Seattle, Washington. She died around 1961. And there was a also an older couple, not as old as she was, but an older couple that took care of her, and he was, he was a pastor and his wife, and they would often go over and have a meal with her, and she had a plastic keyboard that she would play, and over the course of her life she had written almost 500 hymns. And her focus was on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we think that, well, if I was blind or deaf or had any of these other difficulties, what would I do? And she expressed it so well in that hymn. It's, it articulates Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. We turn our eyes upon Jesus. That's how we focus our lives is on Jesus. The three verses read, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. How many people today live in spiritual darkness? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more has dominion. For more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you. He promised. Believe him, and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to focus upon our Lord Jesus Christ, to learn what it means to focus on him, that we are to be occupied with him. We are to concentrate on Him. We are to focus. We are uh, to order our lives around pleasing Him. Father, challenge us with what we study tonight. In Christ's name, amen.